0: What do you call people... By the way, I'm doing a a mic check while I do my intro here because we had some problems, so I've asked Gary to mess with buttons and stuff. When you're ready to give me a thumbs up, I'll know we're done. Great, thank you. So what do you call people that go out of their way to help other people? You know, in our culture, we really frown upon the word servant. But when you live next door to an elderly couple and you're pulling the weeds in your front yard... I know a lot of people who step over the property line and pull weeds. Isn't that a servant? We don't like the word, but we do like the concept. What do you call a band that practices for hours during the week, gets up early on Sunday, when some of us can't even be bothered to get up and be here by 1030, to help lead us in worship without pay, without praise. Well, they get some praise. What do you call them? Call them servants. What do you call people who sit up in the balcony, run our graphics, our video cameras, our sound boards, work in the nursery, work in the sunbeams, the kids' connection, come to church, set up tables so you can eat at the potluck? Servants. Well, the Bible talks a lot about slavery and servants. And by the way, even though in our language and our culture we don't use those interchangeably, they're interchangeable pretty much in the Bible. So bring the rain. You're slaves. How do you like slavery? Is it doing good for you? Those of you working upstairs, you're slaves. The idea is you can be a willing slave for a good cause, or an unwilling slave. Today we're going to talk about slavery because we're in First, uh, Second Samuel, chapters eight and nine. Here's what happened. Remember, King Saul died. David became the next king, but only over Judah. One of Saul's sons got all of Israel. They battled. David's guys always won. Judah expanded. Israel decreased. So much so that that little junior king ended up getting assassinated by his own commanders, and David took over all of Israel. David, in chapter 8, started fighting the nations around them, because they were bad guys, and God told them to take control, and they did. David beat up the Syrians. David beat up the Edomites. He became the power. Israel became the power of that area. Israel, a bunch of scattered tribes that everybody was beating up on, is now the one everybody's afraid of under the leadership of King David. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9, David's sitting down on his throne. Life is good, and he's thinking about his recent history. Now, you remember his best friend, who even risked his life to save David on more than one occasion, was King Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul died in battle. Jonathan died in battle. But David wanted to do something for Jonathan's family, something, if there was anything he could do. That's what brings us into the the chapter nine. So one day, David asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family? If there is, I'd like to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So there was a servant of Saul, slave. There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. And he, told, he was told to go to David. So he went, the king asked him, and here's what Ziba said. There's still one of Jonathan's sons alive. He's crippled. And when Mephibosheth, that's the name of him, When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, and the grandson of Saul arrived, he bowed down before David. Now, yeah, it was customary back then to bow down before people. Even in Asia today, to bow like this is quite common. We're like, we go like this. We're just so proud, you know. But back then they bowed. Back in those days they bowed. And if you were before somebody powerful, you went down on your face. Well, in those days, and in that culture, when one king defeated another king... He went and killed all the remaining family members so nobody else could rise up and challenge the throne because it was done through families. So Mephibosheth is now called before David. What's he thinking? He's thinking, I'm here to die because my grandfather was Saul and I could be king someday, so David's going to kill me so he doesn't have to worry about that. So the first thing David says to him is, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. Don't be afraid, David replied. I'm going to be kind to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will give you back all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you'll always be welcome at my table. So he doesn't get killed. He gets the king's property back. Every week we've been talking about David, I've been telling you what a good man he is. He doesn't follow the culture. He does what's right. Boy, wouldn't that be a sermon? Don't follow the culture. Do what's right. doesn't matter what people think. Just do what's right. David was a good man. He said, I'm going to return to you this property, and you're going to feast in my palace for the rest of your life. So the king calls Ziba, Saul's servant, Saul's slave, and says, I'm giving Mephibosheth everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants will farm the land for your master Saul's family and bring in the harvest. You're going to provide food for them, but Mephibosheth himself will always be a guest at my table. And then there's this little parenthetical line that says, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba had 15 sons? The man's a slave. And he had 20 slaves himself. So there's a few things I know about Ziba from that line and about servants or slavery in those days. First of all, you could be a servant and be rich. You got 15 kids how many of you could afford to clothe, shoe, and feed 15 kids? Yeah, no way. How much does it cost just to put clothes on those kids? And clothes today, a lot cheaper than they were back then. A set of clothes back in those days would cost you about as much as a used car would cost you today. Yeah, you just couldn't go to Walmart and buy an $8 pair of slacks. We're talking a few thousand dollars for a set of clothes. So every most people had a set of clothes. That was it. Just like you've got a car. That's enough. Fifteen kids. And if that's not enough, he's got 20 servants. Now, does that blow your mind, a servant having servants? Because from the history we know about in this culture, slavery was mean, nasty, ugly, and of course they didn't have their own servants. So slavery in the Bible, a lot different than the slavery we learned about if you watch the movie Roots back in the 80s or whenever it was. Let me give you some facts about slavery in general, and then we'll talk about biblical slavery particularly. Every major culture has had slavery from the beginning of the keeping of history. Every major culture has had slavery. Today, slavery is illegal. It's illegal nationally in our country, and by international law, it's illegal. About 200 years ago, a British statesman, a believer, William Wilberforce, gave his life to end the international slave trade, and he succeeded. We also had an abolitionist movement, so between England and ourselves ending slavery, we ended worldwide legal slave trafficking. Now, having said that, it is estimated today on the small end there's no less than 12 million slaves in the world right now. On the high end, 27 million slaves in the world right now. And if the number 27 million is accurate, and a lot of organizations that fight slavery use that number, if it is accurate, most historians think that's more slaves than at any time in human history. I doubt that myself, but I'm no big historian, but that's a huge number, 27 million. So I did a little math just to help us understand what 27 million really is, because it looks like two numbers and a bunch of zeros. I went online and got some large city statistics of their population from a few years ago. They're not current. They're like from 2009 or something. So I'm going to give you numbers. You're going to say, that's not right. It's Numbers from then that they had on the books. Los Angeles County, just under 10 million people. Phoenix, remember, a few years ago, one and a half million people. Tucson, half a million people. New York City, just o- over 8 million people. Chicago, just under 3 million people. Miami, about half a million people. Alaska, the entire state, over 600,000 people. Detroit, over 800,000 people. You add up every breathing person in all those cities and counties I just gave you, and we're still short 3 million. That's how many slaves they say are in the world today. It's, it's frightening. This statistic is the one that really got me upset. They estimate that about 50% of these slaves are children. <sighs> when I found out how they got these slaves, it goes down like this, oftentimes. Imagine you're just a poor family, eking out a living in some third world country, Malaysia. And you've got three kids. And you can barely afford to feed them once, twice a day. They've got no future. There's no way they can go to school and get a job. Their lives are going to be miserable. But in your community, there's a wealthy guy that does a lot of traveling. And he kind of befriends you, and he says, you know, I know you're in a bad place. I do pretty good. I own several businesses. If you want me to take one or two of your children, I'll take them and put them to work and send them to school. And the parents are, would you really? Yeah, I can only take one or two, though. I can't afford all of them. Oh, yes, please, take my daughter. Okay. He's a slave trader. He takes this little girl, brings her to a foreign country, and puts her to work or abuses her that's how it's done evil evil people out there now slave numbers numbers aside they estimate 126 million children work in the worst forms of child labor we're talking children's 5 to 17 years old well if that's true that would add to the number of slaves because to me that's a kind of slavery child labor the worst forms that would be by the way if the number is correct, 126 million, one out of every 12 children in the world between the ages of 5 and 17. They estimate there's 300,000 children who are forced to be soldiers, some of them under 10 years old. They take a kid who's 10 years old, put a gun in his hand, and say, now go to war. How can people do this? It is so evil. And yet they do it By the way, this is what we think of when we think of slavery. This is what's going on in the world today. And it's no wonder we hate slavery. But slavery of today is not the same as slavery of yesterday. And slavery in other cultures, well, slavery varied from culture to culture in their laws and in their treatment of slaves. So I want to agree with you that slavery is an evil, ugly, barbaric practice. ...as we understand it today. But the Bible has an entirely different view... ...and I want to share with you... ...what the Bible says about slavery. Probably my favorite book, uh, verse on it... ...Exodus 21:16. Anyone who kidnaps another... ...and sells him... ...or still has him when he's found... ...must be put to death. God told the ancient Israelites... ...the penalty for enslaving people... ...against their will... ...was execution. Kidnapping was a capital offense... That's what God would say about modern-day slavery. Perfect solution, go find them all and kill them. Kill all the people who kidnap people. Done. Israelites were not permitted to enslave fellow Israelites. Listen to what Leviticus 25 says. He's to be treated as a man hired from year to year. You must see to it that his owner does not rule over him ruthlessly. Wait a minute. You can't enslave an Israelite, and yet he's called an owner. What's that mean? Well, how do we use words today? Um, How many of you feel owned by your bosses? Let me see your hands. Okay? In ancient Israel, you could go to work for somebody, but it was on a contract. And it wasn't like the kind of contracts we see today. This was an unbreakable contract. You were bought. You were a slave. But not in the sense of what we were talking about. One Israelite could not hire another Israelite as a formal slave, but they could own their contract and demand that they fulfill it. So it's a little different. God said he is to be treated as a hired man from year to year, you must you must see to it that his owner does not rule over him ruthlessly. So you say I own you now, I can treat you like dirt. No, against the law. It's more like a employer employee relationship. Leviticus 25:55. For the Israelites belong to me as servants, slaves. They are my slaves, whom I brought out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So God tells the Israelites, you can't own them as slaves because they are already owned as slaves. I'm the master, you're my servants. Interesting. God claims ownership of his children in that way. This concept of God owning the Israelites as his servants and him being the master is carried over for all Christians into the New Testament. Listen to what it says. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Your body is not yours. It's been bought. Therefore, use it to honor God. Here's another one. He who was a free man when he was called in Christ's, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So during the New Testament days, slavery was legal. Paul... Is telling people if you have an option don't become a slave that's what he was saying you already have a master he also spoke to people who are already slaves he said hey if you're a slave try to get free he didn't mean escape he meant work your way free there were ways to become freed. we'll talk about that in a couple minutes so just in a nutshell a couple of the points I wanted to make about what the Bible says about slavery uh, forced slavery through kidnapping was a capital offense Israelites could not enslave fellow Israelites, but they could buy them in the sense of a contract. Um, Really, it was a voluntary servitude. It was optional. Why would anyone want to sell themselves as a slave? Well, let me tell you. Let's go back to that scenario where this guy's got three kids. He can barely afford to feed them a meal or two a day. And right down the street, a mile down the road, is this huge plantation. And the guy who owns it is extremely rich, And he has to hire people to take care of his plantation, to farm it, to do everything that needs doing. And everybody who works on his plantation, all the slaves have better clothes, better food, and a better outlook on life than this man and his three kids. What would you do? Your kids are starving. So you'd go to the guy with hat in hand, and you'd say, we've had it hard for the last few years. Um, Do you need any help? And the guy says, sure, I do actually. What kind of help do you need? He says, well, I could use a job and so could my two oldest boys and even my daughter could work in the kitchen. I need kitchen help, I need two boys and I need you. Let's make a contract. What what do you want? Well, we'd like all to be fed. We'd like a change of clothes every year. And if you could give us a little something to buy the necessities on top of that, we'd appreciate it. I'll give you a gold coin every two months food and clothes, and a nice place to live, and I promise to treat you well. Who wouldn't sign that? So the guy's a slave, and he's happy to be a slave. He's finally got food in his belly and a good outlook on life. Leviticus 25, 17, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God, I am the Lord. So God tells them they could do this, but they couldn't take advantage of each other. He's to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. All right, I'm going to share with you six pointers about biblical slavery, crossing over from Israelite to non-Israelite. Um, first one is they could contract for only seven years. And I just read to you he served to the year of Jubilee, so I've got to explain all that to you. When an Israelite bought another Israelite, the contract could only be for seven years. If an Israelite bought a foreigner, the contract could be for much longer. I'm thinking at the year of Jubilee, they got free too. I don't know for a fact. But I do know that all Israelites got free on the year of Jubilee. By the way, the year of Jubilee was 50 years. So if you want to work for me as a slave, and the year of Jubilee goes in three years, you can only work for me for three years. Then you have to go free. But if it's 50 years away, you can only work for me for seven years. Unless you're a foreigner, then I can keep you for 50 years. That's how it works. So the first thing I wanted to share with you, they could only contract fellow Israelites for seven years. Second thing, when they left, they got severance pay. They didn't just say, okay, seven years is up. Later, back to your poor, miserable life. It's like, here's a bag of silver coins. Here's a cow. Here's a couple of sheep. Here's a change of clothes. God bless you. And of course, the kinder the master was, the kinder the severance was. But severance was not optional. It was required. So you knew when you bought a guy on contract or a girl on contract, not only did you have to take care of them for seven years, you had to give them severance when you sent them away. The third is the one that we've already referenced. They all were released on the year of Jubilee. The fourth, even though they had seven-year contracts, they could be redeemed at any time. Let's say this family actually has another wealthy family that lives 100 miles away and three years later they heard that they sold themselves as slaves. They get indignant, they get offended, they go down with their money and say, I'd like to buy them. They've got no choice. They have to sell them. They can be, that's called redemption by the way, they can be redeemed by a family member at any time. So that contract is seven years, but it's voidable if they get redeemed. Also, they often were and could be paid. So it wasn't that they would just get food and clothing. They'd also get a salary. So yeah, I'll be your slave for seven years. I want food. I want clothing. Or better yet, I will give you food. I will give you clothing. And I will give you two gold coins a month. And the guy's like, really? You'd do that for me? Yeah. I'll be your. You know, at that kind of payment, you could buy yourself free. They actually oftentimes made enough money from their bosses to redeem themselves before their contract was up. And off they went with their severance and tried to live again. Maybe they learned some things from the new boss. Maybe they'll fail again in a few years and they'll be back with the contract. So, Israelites couldn't be purchased except for on a seven-year contract, but non-Israelites could be purchased. There was one exception to this rule. There was one type of Israelite that could be formally enslaved, and that was a criminal. So you hear that noise going bump in the night, and you run downstairs with your shotgun. Did they have shotguns in those days? <laughs> of course not. They ran downstairs with their muskets, <laughs> with their sticks and stones, with their swords, and they saw somebody broken into their house. There's three guys in there. So they three guys attack the homeowner. The homeowner whacks one, kills him. Two of them run away. He tackles one. Well, the dead guy's dead. One guy got away. What do you do with the third one? Put him in jail. Nope. he gets sold as a slave. That's what you do with the third one. Now, he just tried to rip off your, I don't know, let's say you're, you had $100 worth of gold in there. So now he's got to pay back four or $500 worth of gold. It was at least four times the amount he stole. Well, I don't have any money. That's why I'm robbing you. Great, now you're a slave. You'll work it off. So how long was he enslaved? he worked off his debt that's how long he was enslaved how cool would that be If people today who burglarized your house you could sell them for four times what they try to steal from you and they had to work it off somewhere rather than paying for their three squares and better medical care than you get in the county hotel I kind of like the idea of forcing people to pay back society for what they've done wrong. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying prison is really pleasant, but that doesn't help anybody. How about making them work it off? That was God's plan, and I liked it. Some people say, well, we couldn't do that in our country because we abolished slavery. Well, maybe we did. Listen, I don't know about the court ruling since then. Let me just read to you. What the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution that abolished uh, slavery said. December 6, 1865. Neither slavery, nor involu- neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We ended slavery except for punishment for crime. That was the original intent. We can still enslave people for punishment for crime. I want one! (laughs) Prisoners of war could be enslaved. So, you go to war with somebody. What do we do? We go, we drop a few bombs, we tell them to be nice, they promise and we leave. A few years later, we go back again. We drop a few bombs, we tell them to stop and be nice, and we leave. Well, imagine if we went to war not over in Europe or Africa, but with Canada or Mexico, and they're constantly taking incursions into our land, and we beat them up and tell them to stop, and they keep making incursions into our land. No, they had a different plan back then. They enslaved them. They enslaved the people that were constantly attacking them, paying back society, and not setting them free to do it again. So they did two things. They went to war, they killed as many bad guys as they could until the others quit, said, "We quit, we quit." Then one of two things happened: You killed all the guys that surrendered. A lot of cultures did that. You let them go scot-free, or you enslave them. Most cultures decided to enslave them. They would take some of them literally home and make slaves out of them. Others would stay home, and then the country that they enslaved had to pay taxes. So like David beat up Syria, killed lots of people, made some slaves of the guys he was battling and told the rest of the Syrians, you owe us X amount of dollars every year or we're going to come back and do this again. That's how they did it in those days. What do we do? I don't know that our system's any better. So that's one of the ways that they got lots of slaves. They were prisoners of war. Now, if you're like the Romans and you're just going all over the planet trying to destroy people and take their stuff and make prisoners out of them, you got all these slaves, that's just evil. And that's what ancient Rome did. They just took everybody's stuff and snagged slaves left and right. But if somebody attacks your country and you win, all's fair in love and war. There's part of this whole slavery thing, a couple of the principles in there that didn't sit well with me. Now, it's in the Bible, so I know if it doesn't sit well with me, there's something wrong with me. Or I don't fully understand it. I'll tell you that right out. So when I tell you it didn't sit well with me, I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with the Bible. But while I'm studying slavery, I found a couple things that didn't sit well with me. One of them was Israelites were permitted to beat their slaves. You say, that doesn't sound right at all. That's, that's unjusty. That's unfair. Sounds it, doesn't it? Especially based on what we know about slavery in our country. But then I gave it some thought. First it said you have to treat your slaves well. Remember I read that to you. They had to be treated kindly and fairly. So how can you put beating slaves with being treated kindly and fairly? Well, obviously, then, the reason you beat them can't be for abusing them. What is the reason that God permitted them to beat them? Remember what the slaves often were. Some of them were debtors. Some of them were prisoners of war and criminals. So imagine you buy a criminal... Somebody who busted into somebody's house armed robbery. First of all, chances are you wouldn't want to buy that guy. He's too dangerous. Maybe you're tough. Say, I'll take him. I'm not scared of him. And you say, hey, you got to go farm my field today. And he teaches you n- new colorful words and says he ain't going to do it and says, in fact, I'm leaving. And he turns around to leave. George, Fred, Frank, Harry, go get him and show him what we think of people leaving. And they beat him, say, I'm going to treat you fair and nice. I'd recommend you don't talk to me that way. Do what I say and don't leave. We'll get along just fine. You see, a slave owner was often a warden and a police officer, judge, jury, and executioner. So now I understand where the beating might have come in. It makes it more understandable to me. If, however, they beat a slave, and cause some serious injury, like put out an eye or something, and then the slave's debt was forgiven and they got to go free. So the beating couldn't be too extreme. So it was this kind of check and balance thing. Now, you really think you got a clue of what biblical slavery is, but it gets even more interesting. A slave, let's just say, you know, in that first instance, you got two sons, a daughter, and the father. Let's say the slave owner's son likes the daughter. That's working in the kitchen. She goes over to dad and says, Dad, have you seen that slave in the kitchen, the new one? Dad says, Yeah. I like her. I want her to be my wife. So the dad goes, the owner, to his slave, the father, and says, How would you like your daughter to marry my son? He's thinking, My daughter married to a rich man's son? What will you give me for her? And then they start bargaining. Um, Three camels, and instead of serving for seven years, you'll serve for two. Father says, four camels, and we're all free tomorrow. No, that's too much. How about, and they bargain. And this girl, who was a slave, is now a princess in the house. So they didn't look at slaves like we do, like some lower class of people to be taken advantage of. They were just people working off a debt. And they could fall in love. You could be a slave one day and a property owner the next. There were slaves who worked for men who had no sons. And when the men died, the slaves inherited the entire estate. So they went from slave one day to wealthy land bearer in the next. Happened all the time. Slavery in the Bible days was totally different. Even the Romans, even though they treated their slaves horribly oftentimes. Let's say they went to war against Ethiopia. And I don't know, let's say Caesar or Pompey captures the queen of Ethiopia and all her officials, he makes slaves out of all of them. Well, the guy who is the finance minister, he's not going to be picking potatoes. Pompey's going to say, you can keep working as finance minister of Ethiopia. It's just now a Roman province, and you'll report to me. Guy goes, done. Either that or lose your head. Okay, I'll keep working for you. So he's still a high muckety-muck. He just reports to another person instead of the previous person. A lot of respect, a lot of money, a lot of prestige. Happy life. Slavery was totally different in the biblical world and even in the ancient world than it was and is in the modern world. So slaves could marry into the family. Slaves could inherit their master's estate. Listen to what one Bible commentary says about slavery in the biblical system. Uh, Hebrew slaves fared far better than the Grecian, Roman, and other slaves of later years. In general, the treatment they received and the rights they could claim made their, made their lot reasonably good. Certain rights were discretionary, it's true, but many Hebrew slaves enjoyed valuable individual and soul. This is important for you to know for many reasons. One is because we all abhor slavery in this culture. And when we tell people goodness of God and how the Bible is an awesome book. I've actually heard people say, "Doesn't the Bible support slavery?" How do you answer that without looking like an idiot? Now you There's something else I want you to know. Slaves could and often would voluntarily go beyond their seven years and ask to stay with their masters for life. Deuteronomy 15, 16, Seven years is up. But if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and he's well off with you, then take an awl, push it through his earlobe into the doorpost and he will become your servant for life. Can you imagine a world where a slave says, I want to be a slave for the rest of my life. Take that poor guy again, who couldn't feed his family. Works for the wealthy land baron. He starts picking potatoes. The foreman says, hey, you got to get this guy out of the field. He's sharp. Puts him into the office. Next thing you know, he becomes CEO of Potato Inc. And the farm that was extremely wealthy has doubled under his stewardship. The owner doesn't want him to go either. By the way, the owner... Has taken his two little pieces of gold and made it a mountain of gold. A couple of his kids have married into the family. Why would the guy go anywhere? He's got it good. His family's got it good. If he was stupid, he'd leave. If he's smart, he's staying. So he goes to the owner and says, I don't want to go. I don't want you to go. Let's keep this thing going. Yeah, let's keep it going. So they go to the public place. So there's witnesses and they have a public signing of the contract right there... in front of everybody's eyes... now everybody knows he's in for life. Being a servant for life... in that scenario... was a good thing. I can tell you another scenario... where it's good to be a servant for life... when your master is Jesus Christ. Right? You kind of get what I'm saying? I told you, way back in the old days... God said, the Israelites are mine. He took them out of slavery... Not to set them free, but to give them a better life and a better opportunity under his leadership. God offers us the same thing in Jesus. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them, but it's not going to be that way with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be, must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says the kind of people he wants us to be are the kind of people that voluntarily serve others. The kind of people who are happy to step over to their elderly neighbor's yard and pull the weeds. The thing about slaves is they can't be arrogant. They are under somebody. Now Jesus, king of the universe, the God and creator of all things, he said, I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve. We're definitely not greater than him. In fact, he took it, he was born in a dirty manger instead of in a palace, lived as a poor Jewish man instead of a wealthy Roman, allowed himself to be crucified. Right before his crucifixion, the night of his crucifixion, he goes to his disciples, takes off their sandals and their stinky, dirty, sweaty feet and starts to clean them. You know who did that in Rome, right? The lowest of the slaves. This is the God of the universe taking on the job of the lowest of slaves. Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. No way. Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you and I have no relationship. Peter said, okay, wash me all. This is the example that God gives to us. I think in a very real sense, everybody is a slave. I don't mean that we've been kidnapped and forced into slavery, but listen to what the Bible says. We're enslaved to whatever controls us. So what's controlling you? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it sin Bible says humans are sold as slaves to sin so the question no longer becomes do you want to be a slave or do you not want to be slave the question becomes what do you want to be enslaved to sin and the devil or Jesus Christ evil or righteousness hope or hopelessness that's what the Bible presents to us a good master who wants to give you piles of gold and love on you Or an evil master who wants to beat you with a stick if you can get away with it. The Bible says we're already enslaved to sin. We're already under an evil master. We just have to decide if we want out or not. That's where it is right now. Now maybe some of you are saying, wait a minute, Steve. That's a little extreme. Sold as a slave to sin? Come on, I'm not enslaved to sin, Steve. Listen to what the Bible says and then tell me if you agree with me. That we're slaves to sin. I don't understand what I do. For I don't do what I'd like to do, but instead I do what I hate. So I'm not really the one who does this thing. Rather, it's sin that lives in me. I know that good does not live in me. That is in my human nature. Even though the desire to do good is in me, I'm not able to do it. I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, I do the evil I hate. How many of you... Knew the right thing to do. Wanted to do the right thing and didn't do it. Let me see your hands. You are not your own. That's, the Bible is just telling us the truth. We're already enslaved to sin. We've got somebody who wants to redeem us. In fact, he didn't pay seven years' wage to redeem us. He poured out his life's blood to redeem us. That's the kind of master I want. Jesus came to set us free. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The son did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life a ransom for many. I don't know where you are with the Lord right now, but I'd encourage you to make a commitment to voluntarily give your service your obedience to Jesus Christ. It might go something like this. Lord, I do believe in you. I do believe you're, you're my leader, that you died for my sins and rose again, and I willingly follow you. I turn from my sin to pursue you instead. Amen. If you can say a prayer like that, Jesus will be your Lord and Master, and I encourage you to do so. In a few minutes, we will have some people over in the prayer room. If you'd like to give your life to Christ, or just need prayer about your health or your finances, they serve in that capacity. They're there to minister to you. So please give them the opportunity to do that. Now, speaking of ministry, how many of you got those purple cards when you came in? Not everybody got them. If you are a regular, if this is your home church, and you didn't get one, you're going to want to get one before you leave this morning. It's a form because we need some church servants. Technically, those church servants are called deacons. These are men. And we're going to also have a group for women who want to serve the church by doing whatever is necessary to help our church be successful by relieving the burden from the pastors so we can focus in on other things and they'll do everything else. If you know somebody who you think would do well in that position, read that little purple slip and then put their name on it and put it in the offering box. We will contact... The people that we think will fit, see if they want to join and become your servant. I'd like the band to come on up, if you'd be so kind. So, after the band plays, we're going to do a couple things. First, we will have some people over in the prayer room. But after the last song, I want all the men to join me over here for our monthly man huddle. And it's going to be quick, it's going to be brief. If you're 18 or older, Join the men over here for the man huddle. And if you're a man and you want prayer also, man huddle first, prayer second. Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Come in, come on in, guys. Awesome. Good for you. Come in in and do this now. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Come on in, guys. All right, so it's our monthly man huddle, right? Guy talk time. Remember I told you I know this guy, very influential, speaks to senators and heads of states all the time. And he said there's one thing he shares with them. And he taught it to me, so I'm teaching it to you, and then maybe you can go teach it to somebody else. He said there's three things that all men struggle with. Wealthy, influential men, poor, non-influential men, educated men, uneducated men, Americans, Throw in any culture, he said. It's three. It's three same things for all men. Women, pride, and money. He says, no matter where you go, every man will struggle with these three things. So last month we looked at women. That didn't sound right. <laughs> and there's that ugly problem again. <laughs> Today we're going to look at money. Next month we're going to look at pride. Why money? because it fits in beautifully. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. So today I talked about being a servant. And he says, we've got to choose one or the other. And if you're like me, sometimes that decision's not so easy to make. We have to make a choice. It's either God or money. Doesn't mean you can't have money. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy money. It's which comes first in your life. So guys, rather than me telling you, because I got some ideas, Why don't you throw out a couple of ideas on how we as men can make sure God comes first over our lives and not money. What can we do in a practical sense to put God first and money fifth? Any ideas? Make sure you spend it on the right thing. Make sure you tithe. You know, check this out. My daughter babysits. Is she in here? Good. I don't want her to hear me. My daughter babysits. So she's got a job, right? She was babysitting a whole bunch of kids not too long ago, came home with 40-something bucks. She was like, wow, that's a lot of money. I said, it is. I said, don't forget to tithe. She said, how much, Dad? I said, tithe is 10%. Just move the decimal. If it's 40, it's, she said, four. She said, that's not a lot of money. I said, you're right, it's not. Four bucks out of 40 is nothing. And so I told her, I said, and the kids were listening, I said, it's a funny thing. Anybody has got 40 bucks, they're happy to give up four. Give 4000 they really struggle giving away 400 I said, why is it that the more we get, the harder we find it to give, and the less we have? It doesn't make any sense, kids, does it? And they said, no, it doesn't. Trying to set them right, you know? But I thought it was a lesson for us too. Thank you. So know what you spend it on. Prioritize. Tithe. Any other brilliant ideas before we break up? Just do something to raise money for the church. Do something to raise money for the church. I like that think on that. <coughs> economy's bad. Listen, most Christians give two and a half to three percent, three and a half percent of their income. That's their tithe. Yeah, it's pathetic. Now the economy's bad. We are robbing from Peter to pay Paul. It is what it is. So, Moving the decimal over. So pray for your church and consider ways to bring more money into the church. And uh, let's see what God does. Something we learned in our money and marriage study. When you're poor, you won't buy when you're rich. Yeah, I believe that. It's, I believe it. You know, the amount of money is not the issue where your heart is. mm-hmm. Yeah, God doesn't our No. money to it. Hey, Tim. Oh, tax deductions. You can maximize your giving through our government system. Yes, you can. Thank you. It's good advice. Somebody said yesterday, they had a really good thing that they said, and um, it just just jumped right out of my mind. I guess I'm hungry. All right. So, uh, pray for the church. Put your hands in. Oh, by the way, you're the men. That's why I'm talking to you. Bring your love and lessons back to your family. On three, it's Jesus, okay? One, two, three. Jesus! Jesus. All right, I'll see you at 12.30 for lunch, guys. God bless.